that justice at this point let us please welcome carolyn wright back to our stage for the first time one of the things that happens when you end up with a few books is you need uh you know you need to be able to carry them now how did they lower that squeeze it wow that's so easy because some of these are really a challenge Eat the mic. Okay. Um, do what? Lean it. Wha- oh, it actually, whoa. Most of the time with these microphones, they're totally, you know, impossible. Yeah, you've got a I know, I should do my... No, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I, I had to do that at the previous reading, which was, shall I tell some of the story of the previous reading? That was lots of fun. That was in January, and it was at, what was it, some theater? Um, I don't know these theaters. It was supposed to be at the Encore. Is that the name of the place? And unfortunately, somebody who, the person who was supposed to open the room for us, uh, lost track of the fact that that was supposed to happen. And then it turned out that nobody in the party had the cell phone of this person. And they, everybody was making all these desperate attempts to try to contact the person who was supposed to open the door to the venue for us. And we were all standing out there, and we were all wearing parkas and hats and gloves, and it was getting kind of cold out there on the street. And yet all these people were very dedicated, and they all stayed. And then Mr. Bertolino here, who was extremely resourceful, said, okay, everybody, uh, and he trotted out, away out of sight around the corner of some block and then came back a few minutes later and said, come on, we've got a venue. And it turned out to be this large, capacious bar. What was it called? The Bar and Grill, all right. And we ended up going in there where they had a huge back room with all kinds of tables and pool tables and lots of space. And we were all able to fit sitting around a table, and we all kind of got set up and, you know, started to do the readings and the open mic and everything. And then karaoke night started. (laughs) So there I was. I was going... I was reading over karaoke night. I think, I think all of the, um, I think all of the open mic readers had finished by the time karaoke started. So that I was able to, I just stood up there going, you know, I was sort of like going. And everybody thought I gave a great reading, but really all they were hearing was, you know, the way we were, or something like that. I I don't remember. (laughs) 
But uh, so yeah, so they and then there was this wonderful. I didn't see it till the other day. Somebody put up a wonderful apology page on the Facebook site, and I thought it was very sweet. It was like a little bird holding some kind of berry in its beak. It was very sweet, and but I didn't know about it until recently because I I actually thought it was I. Pardon? Oh, but but I was so pleased. I I I thought it was wonderful when I saw it. Oh no, no, I didn't know of it, but I, but I, but I was pleased because I actually found the entire event kind of an exercise in, in you know what poets have to do, you know, because you hear all these crazy stories of what happens when when poets have to read. So. That's what happened last time, and here we are. So, thank you all very much for coming. You have you have left your beach resort shores and your sea to ski, whatever it is, or is it ski to sea? All the wonderful outdoor activities, and you're in here in this library venue, and we're all using our library voices. Okay, now I'm going to read something. Um, how much time should I take? It's like twenty of nine and uh, half an hour or something like that. Half hour is good. Okay. I'm going to start with, I am going to start with a poem that Anita actually set here, had printed for, this was for the series, uh, the Whatcom Poetry Series, The Poet as Art, which in a way was a precursor, uh, or is this a postcursor to, to The Poet as Art, this series. Um, and it's a poem that I wrote while, uh, I guess I wrote it on Whidbey Island because it's an acrostic. It is a triple acrostic. If you know what an acrostic is, if you don't, I'll tell you. It is, um, it's a poem where the, uh, the, the words on the margin, the left-hand margin, the first letter of each word spells out a word. But this is a triple acrostic, so we've got a second, the first indentation the first letter of each word in the first indentation spells out another word. And then we have the third indentation right here. I'll tell you what it is. It's Whidbey Island Wah. There you go. I like place name acrostics, and this is it. It's called Triple Acrostic Orcas, as in orca whales, right? Why the pods that used to streak and shimmy in Puget Sound's granitic light have disappeared in recent decades. The reasons speed like a killer criss-craft through clouded inland waters. Reasons subtle as a paranoiac's logic. Goliath-girthed trunks of Douglas fir that shadowed these estuaries and muscle-crowded coves all felled by axes that traveled ever farther up the temperate rainforest's northernmost reaches. Their avocado-shadowed mosses exempted from protection by our bombast. In the global dance that warms to its own internal warnings, coastlines yield like Roosevelt elk hides espaliered against a wall map of the illusory northwest passage, aqua-tinted waves where the shades of orcas frolic. So thanks very much to Anita for setting this. This actually was based on an exercise that Marvin Bell used to give, where we'd have to have a, we'd all have to contribute some words, 
and um, and then write a poem just using those words and many others. So uh, he calls it overnights. So that's fun. I've got my my bag of my bag of poetry tricks here. I'm going to read I'm going to read like sort of like one poem from each of these books, something like that, just to give you a little taste. Um, another thing you may not realize, I was actually born in Bellingham. That was all I did in Bellingham for several decades. <laughs> that was the only thing I had done. Uh, actually, my first winter we spent in Birch Bay when I was a kid, when I was you know a baby, um, and uh, but then. Uh, I, I returned to Seattle many times, you know, over the course of the years. Uh, I used to say I'd come back between gigs. I think at this point, this was a return between gigs, and I would go stay in the parental abode with the parental units, right? Um, that house has long since been sold, but, um, uh, but my, Jim and I, my husband, uh, we moved back to Seattle, and uh, or I moved back with Jim, for whom it was a first move to Seattle. Um, and uh, but this poem is called "Return to Seattle, Bastille Day," which you know is the French, uh, the French Fourth of July, and it's the Fourteenth of July, right? Return to Seattle, Bastille Day. No difference in the gray gulls sobbing like women who circled the tumbrils. Scaffold silhouettes of fur. The same sky lowers over the channel. The plane follows it down like an obsession. Guillotine blade of sun on water. All of this for what? Walking the green neighborhoods with names like gracious women. Madrona, Magnolia. Rain telling its stories on the ponds. Rainbows fracturing in oil slicks. How could I go back to where I first took my age between my hands like a lover's face and said, this far, no farther, then moved from one coastline to the next as if I had no winter and no home? For years it was easy, nothing to answer for what went beyond the weather too soon to give up on the body or lose myself in the blue selectivity of dream. Now what stands between me and the long frontier with winter? A father sleepwalking among ohms and voltmeters, the electric smell of metal, a brother face down in the soft gray light of the calculus, a sister vanished from the glass house of her thoughts before anyone could have grown into her name. My mother, 1945, stepping from the Armistice Day prop plane with her unchanged face, light off the cascade rain front, troubling her memory with its danger. Years before, she could blame herself for everything. Thank you. Um, that that poem is actually, I mean, I wrote it quite a while ago, but it contains a number of sort of uh, hints of 
hints of things, which is always fun in poetry to create a sort of a mystery. And I've been working on a series of poems. Uh, I'm one of the Jack Straw Writing Fellows this year, which if you don't know about Jack Straw Writing Fellows, it's uh, Jack Straw Cultural Centers in the U District in Seattle. Um, and I encourage you, if you're in the Northwest, pretty much anywhere between uh, anywhere between the Canadian border and, and Portland, uh, Portland, Oregon, that is, uh, I think we actually have somebody down in Eugene. The fellows come from anywhere around the region, so I encourage you to apply next time. And I have several postcards, so you can it, with, with all the information. Anyway. I Yes, Robert, yes, and uh, there's going to be a Jack Straw reading at Village Books in, I think it's October, I think it's October, I've forgotten the date, but Robert will read and Shantina Vernon and one other person and myself. Um, it's on their, uh, if, it's on their website. And uh, these are the cards, I've got a bunch of these in the back of the, on the table there if you, if you want to grab one. Um, my project was to do uh, what I called a series of poems from the Mother of Pearl Women sequence. And uh, there's a sequence within there called Mute Sister. And this is about that sister which I had mentioned in that other poem there, the one who uh, did not grow into her name. Um, this, my sister, well, the Mother of Pearl women sequence focuses on women and girls in my life, uh, including my mother and my sister Maureen, which was M-A-U-R-I-N-E, named after my father, whose name was Maurice. Uh, but my sister Maureen was profoundly disabled by birth trauma, and my parents took her to live at the Rainier State School in Buckley, uh, Washington when she was four years old and my mother was expecting me. And so Maureen lived there receiving excellent care until her death in late 1999. I became her legal guardian upon the death of my parents. Uh, and I'm very grateful to the Rainier State School and to the medical and social workers there who really became my sister's uh, family in effect. Um, you may know the Rainier State School is a home for profoundly disabled children and adults um, who require attention and care beyond what you know any family uh, could possibly uh, give to them. And the state of Washington has you know wonderfully kept the school open despite many efforts to close it. So um, yeah, and uh, you know I keep I keep track of that as much as I can. Uh, I'm going to read uh, one poem from this series here. There's three in here. I'll just read one right now. It's called Visit to the State School. Uh, I think you'll understand. As I said, uh, Maureen went to this school when she was a little over four years old. And when I was four, we went to visit I, I don't remember. This is probably the last time we visited Maureen there that I can remember. This was my only memory of her at that, you know, at that age. And then the next, the next, the next time she came up in conversation, I was 23. So, visit to the state school. Mommy, I whimper. She won't talk to me. I tug at my mother's skirt. Why won't she talk to me? I am four. 
My mother crouches next to me, so she's at my eye level. Smell of perfume and cigarette smoke in her hair. Not far away, the tall girl with curly, dark gold hair, whom the ladies in white dresses brought and stood before me. This is your sister, they said, and left her there in front of me. My sister shook her curly head and stood there. I didn't know I had a sister. What's your name? I asked. Do you want to play? But my sister just stood there, rolling her eyes, rolling her curly hair from one shoulder to the other, till I got scared and ran back to my mother, who stood smoking and talking with the ladies in white dresses. Mommy, she won't talk to me. I tugged my mother's skirt. Why won't she talk to me? My mother crouches beside me. Perfume and cigarette smoke in her dark gold hair and a hollow look in her face. I don't yet know the word stricken. You see, dear, my mother puts her arm around me. She can't talk. She can't talk, I ask. She's not able to talk. Oh, how strange. I think as the ladies in white dresses lead away the girl they've called my sister. My mother stands and takes my hand. Together we gaze into the vast day room full of blurred, wobbly children making vague, word-like sounds and playing in slow motion. So much like, unlike, the children in the playroom for shoppers' children at the Bon Marche downtown. She can't talk, and I can't know. It will be years before my mother mentions my sister again. Thank you. Um, uh, I'm going to read. I'm going to read a little bit more about about children here. I'm going to read the poem that's on the website. Uh, you know, it's very nice the way this this uh, publicity. You send a photo, you send a bio, and you send a poem. And I'd had a different poem for the reading back in January, and now I sent another one from uh, the book called Seasons of Mangoes and Brain Fire. Gradually pulling everything out of the bag. Um, this is uh, a poem called The Miracle Room. Uh, it is set in a wonderful church, one of those Baroque, uh, sort of colonial Baroque churches, tropical colonial Baroque churches in, in Bahia, in Brazil. And, um, I have a special, a special connection with, uh, the city of Sao Salvador in Bahia, because I went there when I was on a Fulbright grant to Chile. I was in Chile, uh, for a year, but I was told by people, you must go to Brazil, you must go to Brazil, and you must go to Bahia, to the city of Salvador for the carnival. It's o Carnaval do Povo, the carnival of the people. It's a very, Real, not like Rio, where all the ladies look like Beyonce and they're wearing six-inch high high heels and big feather headdresses and all that, and they just wow. dance. Oh, they're wonderful, very glamorous. But you know, little me, I couldn't do that. I wanted to go to a city where all the women looked like real people and, and they dance barefoot or with you know flat shoes on the way I do. Anyway, um, so I had a wonderful time there, and one of the places I went 
that I was told about was this wonderful church. It's like, it's kind of like Our Lady of Lourdes, but it's Our Lord of Bonfim, Nosso Senhor de Bonfim. And it has this miracle room, uh, off the high altar, the high Baroque altar of the church is this miracle room where, you know, all these healing, um, and, and, and you know, bringing back to life Stories are told about healing that goes on in that church. And so these two rooms off the high altar, there are all these photos, testimonials and, and, uh, casts and before and after photos of people who've been healed. But there were so many tourists in there, uh, right then, and I just couldn't see a miracle. I thought, how can you see a miracle with all these tourist buses disgorging people and, you know, cameras and people shouting in lots of different languages and, and tour guides and et cetera. And I thought, well, then I kind of looked around very quietly and this was the miracle that I saw. The miracle room. Nosso Senhor do Bonfim Church, São Salvador da Bahia. The Kodaks focus on the ceiling, a Baroque reliquary, doll factory of arms and legs. Facsimiles the grateful make of ghost limbs raised from the dead, silver medals from the mouths of infants who weren't supposed to live. Before and after photos, testimonies scotch-taped for years to the wall. The home movie makers check their light meters and wonder what's held up the tour bus. They don't notice the little girl who comes in through the side door without a face. They don't see her cross herself, dip her fingers in holy water with coupons from the Bahia Hilton floating on its surface. No one notices her slide along the wall, finding her way with the help of plaster hands that catch hold of hers. The charter group doesn't know she's lighting a candle, kneeling before our Lord of Facelessness, our Lord of Bonfim. They can't see the black Madonnas in their sea-froth lace, nod from the altars, raise carved hands in blessing. Not even the cook's tour guides, reciting from the souvenir brochures, glances over to see her rise, blink, sneeze once, press fingers to the deep rows of her mouth, and skip out the chapel door, swinging a mask from which the features have been erased. It really happened. Oh, look at that. That's wonderful. I can keep moving this around. Okay, I am going to move to, uh, since we're talking about miracles, let's move to raising Lily Ledbetter. we got to raise Lily Ledbetter. I, that was a title. It was so much fun. You know who Lily Ledbetter is, I think. She was the woman who had worked for many years at a Goodyear tire factory in northern Alabama. Um, she started working there. She was sort of early middle age, and she worked there till late middle age, about 20 years. And she was uh, she rose through the ranks and became a night manager which was, you know, a fairly mid-level, I'm not sure. Anyway, it, it involved a lot of responsibility, and she worked at night, which my husband knows a lot about at the moment. Um, but uh, 
when she was about, and she got a lot of harassment because it was a kind of a, a guy's guy's place to work and she was the only night manager. All the others were men. Uh, most of them by then, after she'd been there 20 years, about half of them were people whom she had helped to hire and train. Uh, but just before she was about to retire, somebody slipped her some documentary evidence that at her highest pay grade, right before retirement, she was making between 20 and 40% less than all of the other night managers, all the male night managers, including those whom she had trained who had been there far fewer years than she. Okay, when President Obama was elected in, you know, 2008, then he, you know, took office in January of 2009, the very first legislative act that he signed was the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Restoration Act. Uh, and I won't go into too much details. The introduction to this anthology gives a lot of that background. But basically what the deal was, she had, when she found out about her, uh, you know, this unfair salary, she took the case, she filed a complaint, it ultimately went to trial, she won the trial, she won millions of dollars of back pay and damages, etc. But Goodyear, Goodyear appealed, and on the appeal in this very conservative appeals court in southeastern the U.S., uh, they threw it out because they said, well, um, you should have appe- you should have, you know, filed this case within 120 days of the very first instance of an unfair paycheck. Well, how was she supposed to know that? Because, you know, talking about your pay, sharing information about your pay was a firing offense. You know, so how, how in the hell could you do that? And the other thing, of course, maybe the first instance of differential in pay is like maybe $5 a month difference. You don't know what that's about. Maybe the other colleague needs more bus fare or something, you know. Uh, and, but then over the years, of course, it grows. And, but, you know, so by the time she found out, and the only reason she found out was that someone slipped her the information anonymously. So the Fair Pay Restoration Act, named after her, basically um, gave everybody, every time a new paycheck, they get the next paycheck with the unfair rate of pay. That starts the 120-day clock again. So employers cannot get away with it the way they used to. Uh, now what they've done is turned everybody into associates and it's all the gig economy. So that's how they've gotten out from it this time. Anyway, let's not go there. But um, So this anthology, I edited it with uh, my wonderful colleagues, uh, Eugenia Toledo, who's still in Chile, but she'll be back at some point, and uh, M.L. Lyons, who... Uh, you know, has helped me work on this. And I'm going to read, I think what I'll do is I'll read two poems from the anthology. It's all poems by other poets and, you know, poets from all over. Some people in this area you would know of who are in here, Holly Hughes, Aaron Fristad, uh, Lois Red Elk, who's in Montana, who's a native poet. Um, Oh, gosh, who else? Judith Roche, who's in Seattle, who's originally from Detroit. Uh, Sarah Zale, who lives in Port Townsend now. 
Oh, there's a number of one. Anna Maria Spagna, who is actually more of a prose writer, but she has a prose poem in here. She lives in Stahican. Um, and anyway, it's a, it's a really fun anthology. And uh, it, it did win. There were ten nominations of individual poems from the anthology that were nominated for the push card. And the, uh, one of the, one of the, um, one of the nominations was for the essay, and I'm grateful for that, because that's the thing I did write. Okay, I'm gonna read two poems from here, and one sort of entering the workforce and one exiting. Um, <laughs> this is the first poem in the book. It's by Rita Dove. You've all heard of Rita Dove, right? It's from, uh, her, uh, it's from one of her poems about her own family. It's called My Mother Enters the Workforce. You know, Rita Dove was poet laureate. Gosh, like 20-some years ago now. A wonderful poet. My mother enters the workforce. The path to ABC Business School was paid for by a lucky sign. Alterations. Qualified seamstress inquire within. Tested on sleeves. Hers never puckered. Puffed or sleek. Leg a mutton or raglan. They barely needed the damp cloth to steam them perfect. Those were the afternoons. Evenings she took in piecework, the treadle machine with its locomotive whir, traveling the lit path of the needle through quicksand taffeta or velvet deep as a forest. And now, and now, sang the treadle, I know, I know, and then it was day again, all morning at the office machines, their clack and chatter, another journey, rougher, that would go on forever until she could break a hundred words with no errors. Ah, and then, no more postponed groceries, and that blue pair of shoes. <laughs> so, thank you. Thank you, Rita. Thank you, Rita. Um, yeah, I think her mother had gone to work sometime, probably in about the 20, probably in about the teens or the 20s. So a while ago, probably the 20s, because Rita was born in the early 50s. Okay, now we're going to go to the other end of the employment cycle, and we have Denise Duhamel, who is a professor of English now at Florida International University, but had all kinds of job experience before then, including working in supermarkets and as an adjunct teacher and all kinds of things. So this is a poem of hers called Unemployment, and it's from a series called Recession Commandments. You'll recognize about the recession. Uh, for some people, it's still going on. Hold on just a sec. I need some water. But uh, yes, uh, and you'll also recognize in this poem that it is patterned on a certain rhetorical pattern, which you've all heard of, uh, which you will recognize. Everybody will recognize it. <clears throat> For six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work. For six days thou shalt post thy resume, hand deliver thy resume, rewrite thy resume to best suit labor sought, mail thy resume overnight or priority, fudge thy resume. For six days thou shalt kept track of all thy efforts to qualify for an extension of unemployment benefits. For six days thou shalt feel guilty, cry, wring thy hands, redo thy checkbook, 
upon thy TV and thy jewelry. For six days thou shalt fill out applications at chain restaurants, hospitals, retail stores, schools, offices of all types, including temp offices, banks, nail salons, hair salons, supermarkets, nursing homes, construction sites, topless bars, hot dog stands. For six days thou shalt set up an eBay account to sell thy dishes, and thou shalt bring thy best clothes to a consignment shop. For six days thou shalt call up favors and let go of thy pride. For six days thou shalt apply for no interest credit cards. For six days thou shalt fill out applications to become a telemarketer, a customer service employee, a tutor, a nanny, a janitor, a maid, a dog walker, a dog catcher, a cashier, a mail order bride. For six days thou shalt write letters to government officials when unemployment extension benefits are denied. For six days thou shalt labor and do all the work thou can find. And there was no seventh day, was there? Okay, now one of the things about that anthology was um, I, I subscribed to that you know, protocol of not including my own poetry in the anthology that I was editing. So here's a poem that's not in the anthology and about a job experience that's not on my resume, which, of course, is the title of the poem. <laughs> you know, many of you will probably recognize this sort of job. <clears throat> I quit! I meant to tell the manager, Lurleen, as soon as I ducked into Pizza Haven that Friday afternoon to collect my final paycheck. A day off from my first crummy job at 17. Tail between my two thick legs, I slunk into the air-conditioned cigarette smoke, hay chill, skin damp, cheese and pepperoni, a greasy feasty haze. Pizza hell, I called the place. I was almost ashamed to show up. I was such a lousy waitress, mixing up orders, begging smoker co-workers to empty the ashtrays from my tables, smoothing unused napkins and pushing them back into the spring-loaded metal dispensers. I slowed, slowed, slowed the whole operation. Even then, a reduce, reuse, recycle fiend before the slogan had even, even, even been invented. Lurleen met me in the aisles between tables whose oilcloth covers I never could wipe clean. She straddled the passageway and growled, You're fired. Her bulldog jaw worked as if a wad of chaw had found its rhythm and was perfecting its moves in her mouth. Get your paycheck and clear out. She blocked my way to the kitchen, her eyes drilling me with a roomy blue precision. Oh, I, I, I stammered as I had when frat jocks slapped my derriere and each other's backs, then stubbed out their Marlboros in uneaten slices of perfectly good pizza I could have wrapped up and taken home on the sly. It would only have been thrown away. As I'd stammered when Dirk, the afternoon cashier, had caught me at the end of my shift, 
sliding uneaten slices wrapped in wax paper into my handbag. You can't fire me. I quit. I finally blurted. But Lurleen had already stumped back to the server station to stack the plastic garlic bread baskets and yell at the new girl to wipe down the red and white tablecloths almost as checkered as my resume in all the decades since that day. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, I am going to read one more poem. And you may know that not on my resume, I have a, an alter ego, or actually I have an alter ego has me. Her name is Euleen, and that poem is most likely going to be into the next Euleen book which is going to be called Broom Closet Speakeasy, The Confessions of Euline. So I'm going to read one poem from the first Euline book. Or maybe I'll, let's see, what am I going to read here? Ah, uh, Oh, okay, I just had a, a cro uh, audience request from the new manuscript that hasn't come out yet. There's all these Euline poems in here. Here is Euline looking very sweet. Actually, this cover was also designed by Eugenia Toledo. She did the image. So you have Euline and you have her, her kind of, her kind of saintly sinner shadow figure. Anyway, yeah, with the halo and, uh, you know, casting a shadow on the wall behind her. Anyway, uh, so that's here. And, uh, I have gotten the request. So by popular request, I'm going to read this. One of the things I often do as a poet is write poems that reply to other poems, which I often call poetic palimpsest, or the poet writes back, the poet strikes back. And this was actually a poem that if you recognize the typography and the layout on the page was in the New Yorker. But of course, that's because it was written by not my brother, not my cousin, not related in any way except poetry, Franz Wright, who was the son of the late, great James Wright, and actually the late, great Franz Wright. He died a couple of years ago, even though he was younger than I am. Anyway, he had a poem called, I Dreamed I Met William Burroughs. And it was, I met William Burroughs in a dream. It was some sort of bohemian farmhouse. And he was enthroned, small and skeletal, in a truly gigantic red armchair. Well, Euline saw that poem and she said, hey, I can't let that go because I didn't meet William Burroughs, but I met William Blake. So here's what Euline had to say. I dreamed I met William Blake. <clears throat> with a little epigraph, with thanks to Franz Wright, I met William Burroughs in a dream. I met William Blake in a memorable fantasy or nightmare. It was some kind of beat coffee house, South Bank or Soho, 1950s or 1790s. I couldn't tell. The clothes were equally fanciful. Black velvet capes and wide floppy hats with feathers. Blake sat in state cross-legged on an immense divan with horsehair bolsters, the soft pop-pop wheeze of hookahs and hubble bubbles being sucked on in the smoky haze behind him. He was florid and robust in his Georgian frock coat, his gaze 
fierce and piercing. When I asked, how do you do? He answered, all the angels quit, you know. The devil hath better weaponry, throws better parties, and he don't have to rhyme. You lean now, I rather fancy that name. You lean, roars and shakes her fires in the burdened air, hungry clouds swag on the deep, etc., etc. I say, could you lend me a quid? Our friend old Noba Daddy sits no more aloft, but here below a dullish fiend midst a raft of ingrates. Hence, you must rejoice without end. Oh, I wanted to ask him what he meant, but then the cafe's languid days was rent by football-jerseyed revelers wailing on vuvuzelas, and Blake was whisked away. The dream dissolved into the glare of Stygian day. Thank you. Maybe I'll end there. I, as I was reading that one, I was sort of seeing the temple bar, you know, with those wonderful brocade velvet on the wall. So I thought, yeah, that, that's sort of like wherever this was. <laughs> so thank you so much. And, and I really enjoy it. Does anybody have any further questions? Or anything? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm going to have to check. I think it is October 3rd. But you can look it up. Uh, is it October 3rd? Mm, no, it would be the Jack Straw Readers or Jack Straw Writers, something like that, at Village Books. Maybe they don't have their whole schedule up yet. That's all they have? Oh, Ah, okay. New and selected things taking place. I like that. Okay, well, I can always send the information to everybody. And how, how are you, if you're all on Facebook, uh, I'll do the, and Jack Straw sends out Facebook invitations and they send out emails and all that. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, just pick up the, the, um, the postcards back there and anything else. Yeah, I have the postcards. So, and I'll, I've got a few spare ones here. I'll put them up there. Thank you. Boris, you probably want to say a final concluding postscript or something. Done, yeah. I'm done. I am, I am done. Oh, <laughs> my